Our text tonight is uh, a wonderful text that demonstrates the power of our Lord. But it's also a text that I think appropriately uh, speaks to us here at the beginning of a new year. Because right in the center of our text, we hear the words on the lips of Samuel and the people of Israel, thus far the Lord has helped us. Thus far the Lord has helped us. Of course, in the unfolding narrative of First Samuel, that has a certain significance. And we'll see some of that this evening. But for us as well this evening, we can take on our lips at the beginning of this new year the same phrase that we hear on theirs. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. And my prayer is that as we uh, spend some time meditating on these words in 1 Samuel 7 this evening, that we will be encouraged to do just that, to acknowledge with all our hearts that thus far indeed our Lord has helped us. I don't know how many of you have been to the British Museum recently. Uh, those of you who are locals have probably been there a time or two. Those of you who are visiting, uh, I hope you have had a chance to go. I know at least one person might be going in the coming week, uh, and it's a wonderful opportunity here in London. My favorite place to go, as you head into the British Museum, that beautiful rotunda of glass and light that pours down, you go in, you go around to the left, and right to the left, you, you skirt around the big crowds at the Rosetta Stone. Well, you, you might have to see that if it's your first visit. But generally, you want to avoid the crowds there and then shoot off left again into the ancient Near Eastern Gallery. So leave Egypt, leave Egypt behind for the moment and go into the Assyrian Gallery and look at the Assyrian wall reliefs. And as you read the placards, you'll realize that so much of this history visually depicted tracks precisely with the Old Testament history laid out on the pages of Scripture for us. And it's a wonderful thing to see there armies that the Lord himself defeated. But even more than that, in terms of our text this evening, you might see those wonderful standing stones, many of them of black basalt. They're, they're referred to often as steely uh, these victory stelae that stand there, and they're inscribed. Sometimes they're inscribed right round the entire stone. Other times you'll see images at the top of kings who've won victories. Sometimes the king with his foot placed squarely on the neck of the defeated uh, peoples. And then inscriptions in other languages telling the story of the victory that was given to that king by his god. These victory stelae are set up in the ancient world, and we can see them now. They're set up for one purpose, and that is to give glory to the God who gave victory to his king. Now, in our text this evening, we are directed to a kind of victory stele. Did you see it there in chapter 7, verse 12? What is it that Samuel sets up? to commemorate the victory that God himself, Yahweh, the great king of Israel, has won over the Philistines. Isn't it a standing stone? And he gives it a name. We don't know whether this stele was inscribed. Probably not, given what we know about Yahweh 
uh, and his prohibition against images for his people. But what we do know is that its name alone directs glory to Yahweh as the great king who wins the victory. Because what is that name? It's Ebenezer. Eben meaning stone. Ezer meaning help. Literally, this is a stone of help commemorating the help that Yahweh, the great king, worked on behalf of his people who did not lift a finger and yet were delivered from their enemies. A victory steely to commemorate Yahweh and his glory. And just as Samuel urged the people that day to direct the eyes of their faith upon the Lord who thus far had helped them, So we, too, as we come to this text, want to know how we might take those words on our lips and proclaim with confidence and faith, thus far the Lord has helped us. Because, of course, the Lord has worked great victory for us through his Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. So in order to reflect on just how he's done that, we're going to look at this passage in terms of three aspects. First of all, we'll have a look at what it teaches us about the Lord's people, Secondly, we'll think about the Lord's prophet, Samuel himself. And then finally, the Lord's power, his great power. So the Lord's people, his prophet, and his power. Before we do that, let's just set this chapter within its larger context as briefly as we can in 1 Samuel. This text is a key transitional point in the narrative in 1 Samuel. It's a very carefully woven story. It's a delightful story uh, to read start to finish. In fact, if you've got time this week, you might consider just sitting down to read over a series of evenings 1 and 2 Samuel, because as far as we can make out, these were written to be read together. 1 and 2 Samuel reading right from the start to the finish, telling the story of God's dealing with his people in a critical period that centers on the king who was anointed by God and seated on his throne, the king David. But as 1 Samuel begins, David has not yet appeared on the scene. In fact, Samuel is born, isn't he, in those opening chapters. And his mother Hannah sings that song and dedicates him to the Lord, dedicates him to the Lord's work in the temple. And Samuel serves there under the priest Eli. Eli seems to have been a fairly good priest, but in his old age, what do we know from these opening chapters? Well, especially in chapters 3 and 4, we know that he didn't manage his household well. And his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, rebel against the Lord, and they abuse their position at the gate to the tabernacle. And so the Lord acts in judgment. So in chapters 3 and 4, what happens? The people of Israel take the ark of the Lord out of the tabernacle. This footstool of the Lord of glory, and they use it as if it's a magic object. They take it into battle with them, hoping to defeat the Philistines. But God refuses to be used, and they are defeated, terribly defeated at the hands of the Philistines. And not only that, the ark is captured and taken by the Philistines, taken back to their cities along the coast. And then what happens? Well, you might recall, if you know this story, if you've read it recently, 
that the Lord himself, completely without the help of any of his people, works a great victory within the enemy camp, doesn't he? Do you remember how the priest in the temple of Dagon, this false god of the Philistines, and they come back in the morning, and what's happened to Dagon? Well, this ark, which is meant to be tribute before their god, has instead powerfully overthrown Dagon, and his statue tumbles to the ground. In fact, by the end of that part of the story, his head and his hands have broken away, and Yahweh has defeated Dagon. Finally, the ark is returned to the people of Israel, and it comes back to them, and that's where our text picks up. In fact, as you, if you read right through First and Second Samuel, one of the ways to read and pay attention to what's going on is following the ark. Follow the ark. Where does it go? Where does it go as it travels right round and finally ends up on the cusp of this new temple that would be built by Solomon, David's son? But in our text, the ark has come to rest where? In Kiryat Ya'arim, verse 1. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated it to Eleazar, his son. And there he guarded the ark. The ark has moved back closer to the center of the Israelite territory. It's not yet in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where eventually it wants to go, where the Lord wants to set up his temple, Jerusalem as his holy city, the city of the great king. But it's not there yet. Not yet have we got to that stage in chapter 7. In chapter 7, then, what we see is a staggering, ironic reversal worked by the Lord against the Philistines, especially, especially when we set chapter 7 over against chapter 4, which we've just recounted too briefly, where the ark was captured by the Philistines. Let me just recount for you some of these aspects of reversal that we see as we compare chapter 7 to chapter 4. In chapter 4, the Philistines routed the Israelites in battle. But here in chapter 7, the Philistines are routed single-handedly by Yahweh. There in chapter 4, the ark of the Lord was captured because he refused to be leveraged. Here, the ark has been returned and the Lord acts freely and powerfully on behalf of his people. There in chapter 4, the Israelites shouted as they went to battle with a mighty voice as if they could win the victory themselves. Here in chapter 7, the Lord thunders with his own voice and the enemy flees. There in chapter 4, the Philistines spoke better than they knew when hearing the sound from the camp of the Israelites, they said, Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians. You see, they'd heard about Yahweh. It had trickled through to them, and they were afraid. But of course then... They won because of Israel's sin. Here in chapter 7, however, the tables are turned, and the Lord indeed works a great exodus-like victory for his people. This is the God who has delivered his people from the uh, in the exodus from Egypt. Now he delivers them yet again from the hand of the Philistines. There in chapter 4, the Lord turned away from his people in their sin delivering them into the hands of their enemies. Here in chapter 7, the Lord reconciles his people to himself and gives them peace with their enemies round about. There in chapter 4, the story ended with another name, Ichabod. Ichabod, the name of the child who was born 
to the grandson of Eli after the great defeat. The name Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. Here in chapter 7, the name given to that stone raised by Samuel is Ebenezer. The Lord has been our help, the stone of help. Do you see the great reversal that the Lord works in this chapter as he displays his mighty power on behalf of his people against their enemies so that all Israel joins with Samuel to say, thus far the Lord has helped us. Because by the end of chapter 7 in 1 Samuel, the Lord has again proven himself decisively, no questions remain, to be the great king over all kings, the great God over all gods. And in doing so, he also establishes Samuel as his prophet, his priest, and his judge. And Samuel is the one who will finally anoint David, the Lord's anointed king, who will take his seat on the throne later in the story. Well, let's let's turn to the details of the text now. And let's have a look first at the Lord's people. What do we learn about the Lord's people? Both his people then in this story, in 1 Samuel, but also, of course, about ourselves, because we too are the Lord's people and see ourselves reflected in this text in a variety of ways. So first, the Lord's people. After that debacle with the ark, of the Lord in chapters 4 to 6. We see it here returned to Israel. And in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, it's lodged there in Kiryat Ya'arim. And what do we see in verse 2? What is the response of the people? All the people, were told, of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. The house of Israel, in other translations, lamented, lamented after the Lord. The people are still in great distress because although the ark of the Lord has returned, they have not yet been delivered decisively before the hand of their enemies, the Philistines. And better still, the ark has returned to the people, but the people have not yet returned to the Lord with all their hearts. They have lamented, but they have not yet repented. It is a very different thing to lament than to repent. Lamentation, of course, is what happens when we are in distress, when we cry out in sorrow and suffering and distress. But here, Samuel, as he reappears on the scene in verse 3, calls the people to move beyond lamentation to true repentance. Have a look at verse 3 with me. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Samuel calls upon the people clearly and unequivocally to repent, not merely to lament. And the repentance that he calls for is a repentance that is a turning away from their idolatry and a turning towards Yahweh, the true Lord. They're to put away from themselves all foreign gods, to put away from themselves the Ashtoreths, those those 
wooden poles that they erected to the goddess worshipped by their enemies and to turn back to Yahweh, the only true God. In fact, as they gather then to repent and confess to the Lord as they do, the Lord shows himself gracious to reconcile them to himself. Let's think for just a moment about repentance. Because we, like the people of Israel, do not want to want only to lament over our sin. We want to repent of our sin. What is the difference? What is it that moves us from lamentation to repentance? That moves us to turn from the idols that our hearts chase after and turn towards the living God. To turn from the sin which entangles us and which we refuse so often to disentangle ourselves from, and to turn and cling by faith to the Lord Jesus. Well, in our, in our shorter catechism, the Westminster Catechism, we read about this, don't we, in question 87. This is what we read. What is repentance unto life? Answer, repentance unto life is a saving grace. Do you get that? Repentance is a work of God's grace in our hearts. It's not a pull yourselves up by the bootstraps any more than else in the Christian life is. It's a work of God's grace, first and foremost, in our hearts. Whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. Do you hear that? Do you hear those two elements that fuel our repentance? A true sense of our sin, considering what our sin really is in the sight of a holy and righteous God, exposing ourselves to the light of God's law, his holy law, and examining our hearts ruthlessly, laying ourselves bare before the Lord and having a true sense of our sin. But not only that, because only that would leave us lamenting our sins. But also, Scripture teaches us that repentance involves an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ and understanding that God has been so merciful to us through his Son and our Savior. So knowing our sin, but also knowing our Savior, moves us to repentance. And when that happens, the answer goes on, that with grief and hatred of our sin, we turn from our sin unto God. We turn away from sin, and we turn towards God with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. That, the Catechism teaches us, as it summarizes what the Scriptures hold out, that is repentance unto life. As you begin this new year, our text here in 1 Samuel 7 holds out to us the same challenge that Samuel offered to the people of Israel. Do not only lament over your sin. Do not only consider the ways in which you have failed to fulfill God's holy law in this past year as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother, as an employee, as a friend, as a servant of Yahweh, the great king. Do not only consider your sin, but turn to the Lord Jesus Christ 
and cling to him by faith. That is repentance unto life, following the pattern that we see here in the people of Israel as they listen to the words of Samuel. So we, as the people of God, want to be like the people of Israel in this text. And as they have repented, we too want to repent. They repented, the people of the Lord, by hearing the word of the Lord's prophet. And it's to that briefly now that we turn in our text. What do we learn in 1 Samuel 7 about the Lord's prophet? Well, we've already seen uh, or already heard as we read through 1 Samuel that he is indeed the Lord's prophet. In chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, he's called the prophet of the Lord. He's marked out as the Lord's prophet. We see him in action in our own text in verse 3, in verse 12 as the prophet of the Lord, the one authorized by God to speak God's very words, which convict and then comfort his people. In fact, Samuel is held out here and elsewhere in 1 Samuel as a prophet like that paradigmatic prophet in the Old Testament, Moses himself, Moses, whom the Lord chose to speak through to his people, Moses, to whom the Lord revealed in Deuteronomy 18 that other prophets would arise whose words needed to be tested. And if they were truly from the Lord, if what they said came to pass, then the people must listen to and obey the words of the prophet. Here in our text, Samuel is the Lord's prophet. Later in 1 Samuel, he will function as the kingmaker, and his word, the Lord's word through him, will declare that David is the Lord's anointed. He is to be king. But we've not yet reached that point. Here, the people listen to the words of the Lord's prophet, and they repent, and they trust in the Lord for deliverance. Because do you see what happens? Even as they gather to confess their sins, even as they are lamenting and then repenting of their sins, confessing to the Lord, at that very moment, their enemy is amassing for the attack. As they are worshiping the Lord in humility, the enemy is poised to attack them at their point of weakness. And it's all too fresh in their minds. Only 20 years ago, what has happened? The defeat at the hand of the Philistines. And yet, as they listen to the Lord's prophet, they trust in his word. And do they see the Lord's deliverance? They see it indeed. So we turn now, then, from thinking about the Lord's people and the Lord's prophet, finally to dwell as we close on the Lord's power, the great power displayed by the Lord in our text this evening. When Samuel intercedes for the people there in verses 9 and 10, he offers a suckling lamb as a whole burnt offering. He cries out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord hears him and answers him. Samuel is acting not only as a prophet, but also as a kind of priest here, isn't he? Offering sacrifice to the Lord, petitioning, interceding on behalf of the Lord's people before the Lord. And the Lord hears him. What happens? Well, in verse 10, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day... That day, as we've just been singing about in Psalm 18, written by David after this event, that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder. 
and routed the Philistines. The Lord displayed his power and defeated the enemy and protected his people who trusted in him. In the course of First and Second Samuel, the Lord displays his power in these mighty ways again and again. In fact, right from the start, in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, if you've got your Bible open, you might just turn back there for a moment. Uh, we, we hear there on the lips of Hannah, Samuel's mother, as she prays and dedicates him to the Lord. We hear her say this, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies. For I delight in your deliverance. Now hear this in in chapter 2, verse 2. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Here is God proclaimed as the rock, that same rock who delivered Israel from Egypt and brought them safely through the wilderness into the promised land. That same rock, Yahweh, is now set up, even from the opening chapters of Samuel, to work deliverance for his people again. And in chapter 7, that's exactly what we see. Hannah's song goes on if we jump down to verse 7. And says, uh, picking up at the end of verse 9, It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will do what? What does she say in her prophetic song? He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And that's precisely what he does as Samuel calls upon the Lord in chapter 7. The people have repented, they've turned to the Lord, they've listened to the Lord's prophet, they've confessed their sins, they place their trust in Yahweh, and he does exactly what Hannah's song foretold that he would do. He delivers them with a mighty thunderous shout from their enemies. This is the Lord of hosts, as he's called in chapter 4, verse 4. The Lord of hosts, meaning... That Yahweh, the Lord, by the way, whenever you see that capital L-O-R-D in our Bible translations, that's translating or uh, signifying the name of God that he revealed himself by in the Old Testament to Moses and thereafter. Yahweh, that's what L-O-R-D in all capitals signifies. And when we read the Lord of hosts right through the Old Testament, what are we to envision? What are we to understand We're to understand that this is the Lord Yahweh who comes from heaven in power, surrounded by the hosts of heaven. The heavenly armies are at his disposal. He has no need of the strength of human warriors. He has no need of the people to fight their own battles. He himself, surrounded by angelic hosts, comes to deliver his people. That is the Lord of hosts, and that is the Lord who delivers his people in our text this evening. Well, the other thing that we consider as we close here is that the Lord who comes with mighty thunder to deliver his people is uh, is a theme that we see not just in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, but a theme that we see again and again in the Old Testament, that the Lord thunders with a mighty voice, In fact, many would argue, and I would agree, that right from the earliest chapters of Scripture, right back into Genesis chapter 3, the Lord comes in a mighty whirlwind and a voice 
that instills fear in those who hear it, especially those who have not repented of their sin. What happens in Genesis 3.8 after Adam and Eve have sinned and the Lord comes into the garden? Some translations have in the cool of the day, but literally what is it? It's the spirit, the wind of the day, a mighty rushing wind. What do they do? They cower in fear because they hear the Lord coming. What happens at Exodus? Uh, in Exodus 19, as the people gather at the mountain before they receive the law, the Lord descends on that mountain, how? In thunder and lightning with mighty display of power. And what do the people say? Moses, you go up as our mediator because we can't even bear the sound of this thunderous voice. And then at the end of those books of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 32, again we see that the Lord is the one who rides on the winds and the clouds of heaven, who descends to rout his enemies, and who shelters his people under his wings. Joshua chapter 10, of course, we see again the Lord routing his enemies in a mighty defeat. Judges chapters 4 and 5 with Deborah and Barak. The Lord delivers his people with a mighty storm, a thunderous storm with lightning and rain. This is a rich theme in biblical history, a theme that displays for us what our God is like. This is our God, Yahweh, the Lord Almighty, the one who has no need of us, but delivers us by his own power, his own might. This is the power of the Lord held out to us in our text this evening. It is a power that delivers God's people. It is a power that speaks through God's prophet. And it is a power which defeats the enemies of the Lord and glorifies the Lord himself. By the time we reach the very end of the biblical story in Revelation chapter 6, What happens as the Lord appears on that last great day? The enemies of God cry out. Those who have not turned to God by faith cry out that the very rocks, the mountains, would fall upon them and hide them from the great wrath and power and voice of the Lord. This is the power of the Lord whom we serve. And the difference in how we respond to that power is the difference of how we respond to the cross of Jesus Christ, to the true and great prophet of the Lord through whom he has spoken. Will we, like Israel, listen to the Lord's prophet, not Samuel in our case, but the Lord Jesus himself? Will we hear and heed his word? Will we turn from our sin, not merely lamenting, but repenting? And will we cling to the Lord Jesus by faith so that when the Lord comes again on that last and great day, as he will, with thunderous voice, with lightning and with visible power manifesting his glory, that we will be safe hiding ourselves at the foot of the cross, safe sheltered under the shadow of his wings? Or will we, like the Philistines, be routed, destroyed, before the power of the coming of the Lord. In our text this evening, the Ebenezer, that victory stone, stands for us as a kind of symbol pointing us to the cross of the Lord Jesus. 
so that just as Israel was able to say, thus far the Lord has helped us as they looked at that stone and remembered the Lord's mighty power that delivered them, so we too could look to the cross of Christ, that we could look to the Lord Jesus in his life, his death, his resurrection, his power, and be delivered from our sins and say with the Israelites, thus far the Lord has helped us. Can you, as you begin this new year, therefore, reflect on the ways in which the Lord has truly helped you thus far? Not just in the provision of your physical needs, your daily bread, but that too. But even more, the ways in which the Lord has delivered you from your sin. And as you do so, as you consider that the Lord has helped you so greatly thus far, would you embrace again the Lord Jesus by faith? Would you be driven to a fresh repentance, turning away from your sin and turning towards the Lord? Would you again be reminded of the Lord's great power, that resurrection power by which he raised the Lord Jesus even from the dead, that power which he promises is at work in you to transform you day by day as we grow in holiness. My brother-in-law, who lives in Indianapolis in Indiana, uh, has uh, five children, and one of his children, his son, had quite a bit of difficulty around his birth. He was in the neonatal intense care unit for many weeks, and at times it was touch and go whether little Lowry would actually make it through. Uh, And in the end, he did wonderfully. The Lord was merciful, and Lowry came home to join his family. And uh, my brother-in-law and his wife were so grateful that what they did in their back garden was to have a huge stone dumped right there in the middle of the garden, a big stone. Now, the children play on it. They jump off of it. It has its place in their games in the back garden. But what that stone is for the family is an Ebenezer a stone at which they look and remember thus far how greatly has the Lord helped us as a family. And they teach their children as they point to that stone about the great power of the Lord. Would you, in this coming year, consider how far the Lord has helped you? And would you remember the cross of Christ as your Ebenezer as you look to him by faith? Let's pray.